just want to say welcome to the podcast with CAPS, and our guest today is Rob Boyd, the Executive Director of the OASIS organization in Ottawa, well known here in Ottawa and nationally for his compassionate approach to helping people where they're at, his creative thought processes around that, and leading change in Canada around services to people who are suffering. And uh, Rob, I just want to say hi. Oh, yeah, and Rob's also the award winner of the uh, Recovery Day Ottawa Perseverance and Commitment to Recovery. And so that's a yes. pretty full plate, right? Yes, yeah, and thanks. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to have, be having this conversation with you today. Um, it's, uh, it's been quite a journey, and I really uh, appreciated that award a few years ago and recognizing um, Really, what it takes is actually the name of the award that I really like, that uh, compassion and perseverance, because that's exactly what you need in order to uh, affect change uh, around issues that have a lot of stigma and have a lot of um, uh, kind of innate opposition to them. Yeah. You know? And then so substance use and harm reduction are definitely areas that uh, are rife with that. Uh, absolutely, in this concept that... Uh it is going to take some perseverance. It is going to take some uh, continual and constant effort. Uh, and some, I, I think, word that came to mind earlier when we were chatting was some humility uh, of uh, when we're creating change that we're probably not going to be perfect at it. And, uh, you know. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. I mean, we're going to, you know, we make a lot of mistakes along the way. And if we don't come at the work that we do with humility, then we're just going to keep making those same mistakes over and over again. And so we just need to recognize it. We need to uh, have people around us who are comfortable calling us on it. Uh, so that way we can, we can make those adjustments and, um, and re-strategize because, you know, fortunately there's still quite a bit of, of, of leeway in terms of how much <laughs> mistakes you can make. I mean, there aren't that many that are so catastrophic, but yeah. uh, it's really, uh, really important in this. Uh, you know, we are talking timelines of decades to really get to the change that we want to get to. Um, so we really kind of focus in the moment, but you really always have to have your eyes fixed on the horizon as well and what that end goal is. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful approach. You know, many of us, of course, would like to have the wand where we can do that, and we're, you know, the confidence that if we do what I say, then everybody's going to be okay, but none of the evidence because we haven't done it yet. And so what if we're wrong, you know, and what if we just need to adjust, and that's going to be so much easier if what I, my thing is that if we know for sure, the one thing that we know for sure is that change is needed, and the second thing we know for sure is that that's going to be a process and self-reflection, self-examination, and outside feedback. Yeah, and, and the other thing is not to get into an echo chamber as well, right? And that's something that, that you and recovery, uh, CAPSA are really kind of good at is, is making sure that you are engaging stakeholders who are not typical allies as well. And it's so important to do that. And, you know, we, uh, when we were doing our advocacy for supervised consumption, we were particularly looking at, uh, just to kind of broadly um, stereotype, like the conservative mindset. Yes. And what messages are going to resonate with them. Uh, yes. Because it's very different from when you're talking to somebody with uh, who, who's an ally who already is on board versus the, the person who is not sure about this, really sees you know life fundamentally differently, has a whole different framework for 
uh, social policy and, and how they see the world. And so you really do need to adapt to that. And you need to invite them into the conversation. Uh, because otherwise, yeah, you are in this echo chamber uh, and you're not adjusting your message and you're also not listening or hearing uh, what, uh, what people's concerns are. Well, and the idea that if we need to have change, we need to have that come from the people that don't think so. Yeah, and yeah. And so that's yeah. an education piece. That is an invitation piece. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, our target in our communication strategy wasn't kind of the, the people who were never going to get on board with us, but we knew that there was a large group of people in the middle yeah. who, you know, our belief is, you know, if you give them information in a way that's respectful and you give them time to think about it, that they would come around to it. You know, I used to say, I hold these truths to be self-evident, you know, like it was pretty <laughs> obvious to me that this is what had to be, what, ha what had to happen. Yep. Uh, but I didn't see any, any benefit on calling out people who didn't agree with me at this time. Uh, yeah. there, there was a real concerted effort here by the media in Ottawa uh, because at the time, uh, Mayor Jim Watson was not supportive of supervised consumption services, yeah. and they were really trying hard to get me to call out the mayor on this, and I absolutely refused to yeah. because I didn't think uh, I didn't think that that was going to help our cause at all, and that we really needed to be again just a calm, cool, rational voice explaining to people what's going on. The moment I get into a fight with somebody who's in the opposition, I lose. You know, that's just, it, I think the heart of what we're looking for here today, Rob, is that the fact you've been very successful at creating change here in Ottawa. And I know that, you know, I can see the response already. Rob wants to tell us how many other people were involved, and <laughs> it wasn't all about him. Uh, but you, you were the face in the newspaper, certainly, Rob, and, and you were the person who was holding this line that said, there's pain taking place. But if I bring the anger on top of the pain, no change will take place. And so that's a that's a decision that has to be practiced, I would think, pretty consistently. Were there moments when you just wanted to raise your voice? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, of, of, yeah, of, of course there were. But um, yeah, but it, it wasn't going to serve the community well if I did that, right? And so I really needed to come into this with the recognition that, I mean, I, I came into this with a lot of privilege, and I mm -hmm. still have a lot of privilege, right? So, you know, some of it's earned for sure, but, you know, I, I came with a, with a lot of... Uh, and to spend, you know, it was 25 years at that point of my mm -hmm. career working with people who were homeless, street-involved, mental health addictions, and to watch them... Uh, struggling every day, but every day kind of waking up with still hope that things might become different for them. And, you know, who, who, who was I to give up on that or who was I to undermine that work and that my role and what I needed to do was to try to shift the conversation uh, in Ottawa, not just for the people who would be using supervised consumption services in Ottawa. Like we had the bigger plan in place as well. Like the, we needed to liberate all people who use drugs uh, from the horrible stereotypes that were kind of keeping them down. So we always had, even then, you know, we were working on supervised consumption. We worked for 10 years on it, so it's a very long time. Yes. Uh, you know, the media stuff was really over about a two-year period that we were doing that. But we always had in mind that this was a conversation that we wanted to speak to the entire community about. 
and that we wanted to let them know that what they knew about substance use and people who use drugs was actually wrong and that um, all of the stereotypes, in fact, people generally are like, the people who use drugs are generally the exact opposite of the stereotype of, of what people have out there. So we, we, were, we were fighting, you know, 50 years of drug war propaganda. Uh, but, we, but, to, but to deliver that message, it had to come across in a way that people could consume. And there's the rub, eh? There's uh, the compassionate piece where the people that are having harmful attitudes in supporting harmful be social behaviors are the very ones we need to be peaceful with so they can hear. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, everything that we did was based on the principles of motivational interviewing. So this is something we'd all been trained in. It's how we work with our clients where, you know, you don't directly, uh, you, you know, basically the principles are give information, um, uh, express empathy, develop discrepancy, and roll with resistance, right? So this is what we do with our clients every day in, in terms of trying to create an environment where change is possible. And that's really what this is all about. And so we just took that and we applied it to the community level. And we said these same principles of change are the ones that are going to help people to understand and to hopefully start changing public policy. And educating the electorate or the, the, elect, the electorate or the general public was a way to get political support for the types of things that we needed because politicians are not going to lead on this. They're going to follow. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just very high risk, or hopefully it's less high risk now than it was 10 years ago. Um, so we had to... We, we, yes, yeah, so we basically we took these, these principles that we knew were, this is basic change theory about how people change, and, uh, and we applied it more globally. And it worked really well. Turns out people are people. Yes. <laughs> you know, what blocks change is what blocks change. Yeah. You know, and uh, what people don't understand they're afraid of, and what they're afraid of they don't want to be close to or think about. And so, and if they're wrong, you know, we have a school system that, that very early educates us around doing things right and being right and getting marks for being right. So the idea that, you know, adults working and voting and having jobs are wrong about some fairly significant issue in our society it is naturally repellent to them to consider. When you bring in the fact that they have family members and friends and colleagues involved with the issue... And then you say, well, you've been harmful to them with your attitudes and your beliefs. Yeah. Well, that's really into scary territory now. And so it's best to approach with this idea that, you know, hi, I may have something that may be of value to you if you can hear me. But I've been always been really bad at hearing people yelling at me. I'm not sure what <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely. wrong. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> yeah, you entrench. You just you just stop and you... Uh... You dig your heels in. You know, the moment somebody tells you that you have to do this or you have to do that, you're, you're out of loggerheads then. So, I guess, is it fair to, to take a moment, Rob, and just recognize because of the pain involved, because of personal losses involved, that we want to make sure that we are respecting the fact that some people need to yell out in their pain? And uh, the difference between that is then they're not advocating, they're expressing their pain. And then if we're going to move into change, then we need to take that pain and bring it into purpose and, and skill set. Is that reasonable? I think that, yes, it is reasonable because, I mean, where is that coming from, right? When somebody is so angry or so upset about 
you know, what it is that we're proposing to do, whether it's supervised consumption site or whether it's, uh, you know, setting up a treatment center in their neighborhood or something like that. One thing that I've observed is that people don't feel well taken care of in, mm-hmm. the, in our society. And they feel like they're, they're not being taken care of. And, it, and it's pretty, I mean, I can reach out with, I, I do have empathy for that. I do, I do get why people don't like to uh, live in neighborhoods where people are injecting drugs in the open. Like, I totally understand why people don't like that. Um, <clears throat> we, have to, we have to reach out with empathy to the people that are opposed to the work that we do with the same that we do with the people who, who use our services. And we need to understand and recognize uh, what it is that they are losing or what it is, what it is that might be motivating that. And, you know, they're not our, they're not our clients. They're not the people that we work with in, in the same sense. So we're not going to necessarily get into that level. We just need to acknowledge that these are realities. And, uh, you know, I choose, I chose this field. I chose this place of work and things like that. Other people didn't choose to kind of be in this neighborhood. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, we've seen quite a bit shifting in Ottawa, uh, particularly, uh, since the pandemic started, we have a lot more visible homelessness than ever before. We have a lot more public intoxication than ever before. And to just say, you know, well, that's tough is not, it's not, it's not right. I mean, first of all, we also don't, we want people to be in better spaces. <laughs> they don't have to be publicly intoxicated. And, and mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, we, we have to recognize that it is a problem for the neighborhood. And that's something that collectively we should be trying to address. You know, I work on a stigma campaign, Rob, and I also also have to tell people, you know, I, I did a lot of damage in my relationships. That's not everybody who has the situation I have, but that was my experience, right? And that I, that I wasn't a, a good taxpayer. I wasn't someone who, you know, knew for sure I was going to stop at the stop sign. And, you know, so those are, are, are very real. But who I was and how I wanted to be was much different from how I was able to be. And so we're asking that sort of piece where can you, you know, there's behaviors that aren't okay, but people are okay. And so, you know, not judging the people always necessarily by the behavior, but also recognizing, yeah, no, that that would disturb you. Someone sleeping on your porch when you come out in the morning, it might give you a scare. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and that can contribute to the stigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the community experiences. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of what we do is around enabling people to take responsibility for themselves. So we have this idea of the, uh, the someone who uses drugs is irresponsible and reckless and they don't really kind of care about their health and, and things like that. And um, while that can be true, a lot of what we do is we're teaching people that you are actually in control of this. They don't feel like they are. You know, I mean, people are told that they're powerless over their substance use. People are, uh, or lives are directed by, you know, shelter staff, by uh, probation officers, you know, and things like that. Like they are, they are very tightly controlled. So they've kind of given up a lot of that internal locus of control. Yeah. And so a lot of what we're doing is kind of putting it back on them. We, we have a housing uh, first program for people who use drugs. And uh, I remember at one point uh, early on, one of, the, one of the people in this program coming to complain to me about how we put her in this apartment way out of, uh, way out of the downtown area. And I said, no, we didn't. You chose that apartment, remember? And, <laughs> and you can choose again. You can leave that apartment and you can go somewhere else. But it's, it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a concept that a lot of us, it can be difficult 
to kind of appreciate how it's kind of this institutionalized thinking for, and I'm talking about you know, certainly the most marginalized of, of folks that we're talking about who've, who've spent a lot of time in various institutions like hospitals and jails and uh, shelters. Sure. Well, and, I, and I'm going to suggest, uh, to ask your thoughts on, you know, criminalization of people that use substances has created its own sort of invisible institutionalization around some behaviors and around the inability to talk and so on. What do you think about that as sort of a, another level of institutionalization that takes place without the walls, without the direct contact sometimes? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it uh, that, in that way. Uh, for sure, I mean, the and when we're talking about stigma, I mean, one of the main purposes of criminalization is to produce stigma. <laughs> you know, it's uh, stigma as a deterrent so that other people don't have to take that on so we're not going to address stigma unless we deal for substance use unless we address the issue of, of criminalization uh, so to me that's that's such a such a key piece to it uh, but that whole uh, you know talk about identity you know mm. uh, uh, being you know having an ident a criminalized identity is very kind of self-limiting as well and it's a, it's actually self-limiting but it's also societal limiting of course because it's really difficult to uh, to reach your optimal recovery if you have a criminal record because so many doors get closed because of that. You know, you, you can't get the good jobs. Uh, sometimes a lot of places, landlords are requiring criminal records checks. So, you know, drug crimes are often life sentences for people uh, right. because it really, uh, really does impact uh, them f yeah, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, then there's... Uh... So I look at criminalization, and then I look at persecution that's based on the criminalization. And so I see all our first responders and our health professionals who uh, are pre-criminalized, so to speak, because if uh, a nurse is struggling with substance use, hmm. loss of job, you know, it's one of the first things. Police officer, loss of gun, loss of badge, even if it's on some sort of leave thing but loss of status all that takes place without ever being charged with possession yeah. you know and so those pre cursors to criminalization the persecution of people because criminalization is up here but back here is all this persecution yeah, yeah I mean we have um, we, we know that everybody has some risk with substance use disorder, particularly jobs that are really stressful, like policing, nursing, paramedics, like, you know, jobs that have a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky issue uh, because, you know, these jobs have a lot of power <laughs> and we need to make sure there are certain things that we'd want to make sure that people are not intoxicated while they're doing. Airplane pilot would be a really good example <laughs> for me who doesn't really <laughs> like to fly, yeah. uh, but police with a gun. Yeah, you know, I mean, you want to make sure, or a nurse who has, you know, medication errors and things like that. Um, but yeah, we have to get to a point though where that can be dealt with without the stigma that that comes with it. And you know, you're a police officer, and your job is your sworn duty to hold, uphold the law. And now you are actually breaking the law, so you you've got several layers of uh, of um, Discrimination and self-recrimination that are involved in that—that's such. A, it's, it's it's an even bigger hurdle to come over to overcome. Well, there's an, an irony sometimes when we look at our complex society, and sometimes we see people in the greatest need physically, socially, um, and mental health-wise and substance use-wise are bumping into 
inadequate services, the wrong services, a lack of services, but they're at the door. And then we have a whole portion of our society who has not those immediate judgments to health in terms of housing, but aren't able to get to the door because of all that stuff in between them. And so I guess there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, and very different strategies. You know, I mean, that's uh, you're describing what I would call the hard to reach uh, population. Typically, the people I work with are called hard to reach, but they're actually quite easy to reach if you're respectful and provide them with some really practical things that they need right now. It's the person who doesn't see themselves in this story of substance use disorder or um, or overdose risk. Those are the people that I fear the most for uh, because they it, they're really hard to access and they don't have the tools and the behaviors to protect themselves. Absolutely, or the voice. You know, yeah. and, and, you know one of those things. So, you know, so you've talked about 10 years to go from we need to do this to actually doing this, and then the adjustments afterwards and going, well, yes, okay, we need to do this, but a little differently than I thought, and a little, you know. Now we're getting closer to this conversation on decriminalization. We're getting closer to this conversation on regulated supply. We're getting to begin to think that some of these things may well happen, that at one point were future stories and not much more clear here. What do you see in terms of uh, challenges moving towards that in a way that is helpful to the most people? Oh, okay. Well, he's just you know, going into the harder questions. You know? <laughs> I, I, I think, I think we're always have we we have to always think about this as two, probably more than two, but for simplicity, two different uh, populations. Uh, so we've got to look at those who are, you know, quite severely impacted by things, and you need to look at those who are, you know, along the continuum. Uh, Aren't, aren't kind of as far as long. They don't have as many barriers to recovery. They don't have as, you know, they're not, they're not as marginalized and things like that. Because I think sometimes we, we were looking for one answer for all of those people, and I think it's mm. different. So, for example, I'll give you a concrete example, is around the uh, delisting of OxyContin and the, uh, the kind of the, 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 the prohibitionist impulse that the government had to, you know, stamp out a particular drug and therefore the problem would be solved. Yes, but what we had was, at that time, was that the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario sent out a notice to doctors just kind of cautioning them about high-dose um, patients on high morphine equivalent doses. And so a lot of doctors took that as, uh, as, a, as a reason to take people off their medications and very rapidly. So we'd heard the stories about uh, people who were just abruptly cut off or they were rapidly titrated down, yeah. uh, which led them to the illicit market. And this was just at the time that we were just getting our first uh, powdered pen, uh, fentanyl in the market. So it wasn't what we would, the crazy drug market that we've got out there right now. Yeah. But we had fentanyl that was pressed into pills. And uh, uh, so, and very so, acceptable yeah. form for people that normally wouldn't consider other forms of, of Yeah, so, of this was, so this was the market that people were, were being pushed into. And so we saw an escalation of overdose after that happened. If we had said, and really I think this was the intention, but if it had, had played out that you've got to treat the people who are already in this mess differently from the people coming on, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes perfect sense that you don't prescribe as much pain medication, you don't prescribe it as long, but you've got to treat the people who are 
completely dependent on these more high morphine equivalent doses very differently. So I think we got to, when we think about uh, legalization regulation, uh, I mean, to me, decriminalization is across the board. I, I, don't, I, don't, see, I don't see who benefits from, from the criminalization of, of, of drug use, really. Like, it's, uh, um, it's really, it's just, a, I mean, it's a social policy that was developed in the 1950s and 1960s. And, uh, well, I mean, you can go back. I mean, Canada's first failed drug policy was the Opium Act, you know, over 100 years ago. But the real, the kind of the war on drugs type of thing is based on the 60s, right? And so we don't, sure. we don't currently have any other social policies that were developed in the 60s as part of our society now. So we're, 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 we're hanging on to this one. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't see the downside of criminalization other than I'm not sure that it's going to have the impact that we want it to have on the opiate crisis. That's the only reality. I don't, I don't see how that's going to drive down the overdose deaths. I think it's going to do a lot for reducing stigma. I think that's right. that's the main reason that that I would advocate for that. Legalization, I, I think that the, the trick is to um, think about it in terms of intelligent regulation, and what and again what it looks like for someone like me who doesn't have an addiction, doesn't have substance use disorder, uh, might look different than what it does for somebody who comes into to our shop and, and to get services with us. So for me, you know, if I had access to some recreational MDMA or even cocaine and things like that, it would probably be really different because I have um, I have other things in my life, right? And I don't have this uh, this relationship with drugs that you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people do. What that looks like, though, for for somebody who is right now accessing a toxic supply of drugs in the market might be something like safer supply where you actually provide them with actually a pharmaceutical grade drug uh, for them to have not in the interest of kind of treating them but in the but in the public health interest of uh, you know preventing an overdose death well and you know Rob thank you for all that and, and it is a difficult question you know and and I think you've outlined some of the things that I hear from other people is that this is complex. Uh, this is not, this one will work for everybody. Uh, Steve was, West was on our show uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, he was talking about, uh, you know, when he, if he broke his leg, they don't x-ray someone else's leg to see how to fix Steve's. And so, you know, uh, we have individuals with relationships towards substances whose lives are in danger, and we need to have some system that says they're not all the same. And uh, a group of people that don't have that relationship yet, that I would say that uh, prevention is probably a good idea. And when I say that, I don't mean the prevention from using substances or the shaming of substance use, but I mean not being in a position where your life is endangered because of your relationship with substances. The overdose crisis has changed from the initial period of fentanyl, an unknown, un, un, unrecognized uh, condition, in my mind, Rob, where people were taking it accidentally, people were discovered in the substance accidentally, and that conversion that takes place around uh, substance use where it becomes something that's being sought after, something that is now needed in the real, very real sense of nothing else works now for me. Uh, and it's still in an unregulated, un, uncertain dosage. 
but we don't have a lot of uninformed people who are taking substances who don't know the risk involved. Uh, so hence supervised consumption sites are active, are busy, are reversing overdoses, are saving lives constantly because people with those substances know of the risk, but they also have that need to to use. Does that make sense? Yep, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I can't understate how much uh, fentanyl has changed the game for us. Like, it is fundamentally a new world out there for us. And, and you know, we're talking about yes, humility. It's really difficult to figure out what to do next. Uh, we, the, the, the services and systems that we play, have in place are really intended for a heroin market or for an Oxycontin market. They're not intended for the drug supply that's out there right now. And so we're really scrambling, trying to figure out something, anything that might work uh, with this. Um, so we, you know, I mean, we're, you know, for example, when it comes to injection drug use, if somebody, say, is using hydromorphone or Oxycontin, I mean, these drugs stay in the system for a lot longer than fentanyl does. So, so you know, we were talking about, you know, three or four injections a day. So our model of supervised consumption was based on this idea that people didn't have to inject more than three or four times a day. Whereas with fentanyl, uh, the range that we're, you know, researched here in Ottawa is nine to 13 injections a day. So this whole system capacity has been thrown off by this and that we can't possibly do that. And plus, the risk of overdose has, has escalated exponentially at the same time. So people want to be using this site a lot more. But it, we've, so we've created this horrible bottleneck for people, uh, you know, based on how rapidly this drug supply has changed. The, the other issue is treatment. So, you know, the main way that we've been treating uh, opiate use disorder in Canada has been through methadone. And now buprenorphine and naloxone is uh, the other uh, treatment that we have. We have Sublicade now, which is, you know, it, it, it's a... Um, slow release under the skin uh, injection uh, but so methadone was the, was the main one so we have really good access to methadone here in Ottawa right now very low barrier you if you want you today you could go and get started on your on your methadone but the problem is is that you're not going to feel that initial dose and it's going to take a while for you to get up to a dose that you're actually going to begin to feel the effects of that's going to moderate your use of the illicit drugs and you know then you know hopefully up to a therapeutic dose we can't get people to there because they're the, the use pattern that they have, their identity as a drug user is now <clears throat> consumes them 24-7. That, you know, with every hour, they need to redose, basically, because they're dope sick constantly. And so there's no time for anything else. There's no time uh, to connect with the case manager about housing or to... Uh, come into the health center so we can start the ODSP application and things like that. So their entire cycle is consumed by this. And uh, so the, the the ways that we were going about things up till now are not working anymore either. And we don't know how to get to that next level. So this is why we have things like Safer Supply. Like we're trying to try new things right now. And, you know, from our conversation before, make new mistakes. Mm. Like, like we have to make new mistakes because the old mistakes are, are you know, we, we should have learned from them by now. Well, and again, you know, the need to take that managed risk of change because existing, the losses are tremendous. And, and so they're at that, we believe this will work. There's some sort of stuff about this, but we know that if we do nothing, 
the problem continues to exasperate and get worse. And so the risk of, you know, because I know some of the population will say, well, hang on, you're not sure that you're going to be right? But we're right about the need for change. We're right the need that if we don't take steps forward, we'll never get to a solution. Is that fair to say, Rob? Yeah, we have to try things. Uh, we have to, but we also have to be, again, very humble that, you know, safe supply is not going to be the answer. You know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm supportive of safer supply. I'm critical of safer supply. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of advocating for IOT, so injectable opioid agonist treatment, but that's not going to be the answer either. Like, that's the problem is that we've got all these great ideas and, uh, you know, w there's no one thing that's going to do this. And, you know, part of me is a little bit afraid that there's nothing that's going to do this. Uh, you know, I, I, it's really hard for us to compete with fentanyl uh, and, and what it is that people are getting from this out there. And, you know, in the past, we were able to wait it out. Hmm. You know, we were able to, you know, be supportive of people, provide them with some services. And we knew that there was a risk that something was going to happen to them. But now it's such, it's 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 so... As you say, we've had you know double the overdose deaths in um, in Ottawa, you know, twenty twenty over twenty nineteen. Yeah. There's uh, this sense of doom of of we can't move fast enough, and so when we move fast enough, we start making mistakes where we're not kind of being self critical about things because we just want it to work. Yes. We just really want it to work, and but we do have to take that time, and that's also when we make mistakes in terms of our advocacy and our. Uh, and our change theory is because we feel this urgency for change. We don't want to wait 10 years for things to be different. We want them to be different today, and that's very frustrating. But uh, we, we, have to, we have to, those of us who can anyway, have to be able to you know, hold back on that and to, again, just keep, keep the eyes on the horizon. Sure, and, I, and I, I just want to highlight that I'm speaking with Rob Boyd, who spent 10 years in a tireless effort to bring supervised consumption into Ottawa here to save and secure lives. I'm not talking to somebody who's not uninformed. I'm not talking to somebody who's not been an advocate for change. And uh, I think that's really important in this conversation, Rob, that uh, we are not naysayers here, uh, but we are very much interested in the outcomes in people's lives and the security of their lives, but we're also very aware of that, you know, we don't know. We're not sure. Yeah. And that place, that is a place of humility. Yeah, you know, and, and all along in our advocacy efforts around harm reduction in general, I mean, these are not our goals. These are not our end goals. I mean, drug policy reform is our end goal. Yes. And, um, the, the, you know, things like supervised consumption or needles exchange back in the day, these are just markers of success along the way. You know, we've, we have fought for every inch that we have gained. Uh, in harm reduction and in the promotion of the health and wellness of people who use drugs, it, none of it has come easy uh, to us. So, but they're they're they are definitely worth the fight. And this is the this is uh, you know I, I think this is such an important issue for this generation to tackle and to overcome. That we um, we have to get people involved in this, and we have to get people involved in the right way and support them and empower them. Okay. I have another difficult conversation. Okay. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, you know. it's. Uh, I've asked Rob to be here and have this conversation, and we're unscripted, and we're going to go down some places in this idea that we don't have to be right, and that uh, we're going to take a look at the editing at the end together and make sure we 
and didn't mispronounce any words or anything like that. So um, we have a group of people who are right there in harm's way that we're actively seeking for the quickest life security we can get. And then we have a group of people who might be vulnerable to get there. How do you see protecting those from not moving forward to there? Do you have an idea on that at all, Ron? Well, I mean, this is kind of those bigger issues of things like the social determinants of health, of, of having people have a, uh, a place in society. Uh, I think that that's what drives a lot of our mental health and our substance use and substance use disorder is the social dislocation that people experience, that there's no place for them. Uh, we're, we're not a culture that is nurturing, you know, talking about this, you know, people who are opposed and so angry, like, you know, it's really clear that these are hurting people and that they're not feeling like their needs are being taken care of by society. And so they, why should somebody else get what they're not getting kind of a thing? So, so, but these are, you know, these are such big kind of fixes, but we really, I mean, fundamentally what we need to give for people on both sides of that is hope and purpose. Uh, those are those are the things that get people through the day and build resilience and uh, help them to see a future other than the one that's in front of them right now. So you know those people who are uh, you know who are beginning to struggle, uh, we need to invest a lot more in some good evidence-based treatment, and we need to destigmatize. Um, uh, substance use disorder, just so that people feel okay to go get help, and that they when or when they access the system for help, they're not stigmatized. <laughs> you know, like that <laughs> happens just far too much still. Uh, and you know, so you know, the stigma, reducing the stigma, helps people to see themselves in the story. Helps them to say, hey, you know, I am one of these people. I, or I have this thing <laughs> that, yes. that, they're, that they're talking about. Uh, and then makes it easier for them to access. But we really have to invest a lot more into some good evidence-based uh, care. We were talking just this week about uh, we have a rise of crystal methamphetamine use here uh, in Ottawa you know, mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And you know, there's no pharmacological agent that is going to... We don't have a, a methadone equivalent for, uh, for stimulant use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there are some evidence-based treatments, but they're really for this population that you're talking about. You know, they're, 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 not, they're not as effective as people who have significant barriers to recovery. So, you know, some good contingency management with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is, the, is the thing that's going to help prevent that condition from escalating or devolving into, uh, into people who would then come to use my service. Um, but nobody's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no, uh, there's no investment in this type of, uh, of intervention that I've seen. I mean, we're, ho- we're always hopeful. You know, we've got now a new mental health and addiction center of excellence in Ontario. So, you know, we're hopeful that things will come up, but we, you know, we really haven't thrown the money into this that needs to happen. I mean, we, it has been underfunded for decades and, you know, and we've just allowed this problem to fester and fester and fester and have done nothing about it. And yeah, now the price tag is big, uh, but we have to, we have to spend the money if we, if we want to turn this around. Well, and I'm going to touch on the Mental Health and Addictions Excellence Center of Excellence and uh, look at that word and addictions. Uh, and we know 80% of Canadians use substances. Uh, not many of them ever develop an addiction or a substance use disorder. And yet they all have health concerns and need education and, and to know 
what are healthy choices around their substance use. And so we can see sometimes that in a very systemic way, uh, unless you're really, 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 really sick, you can't talk about your substance use. And which, of course, makes those people that are suffering the most even harder to have that conversation. So we've introduced this idea of substance use health uh, so that we can look at Canadians around substance use, not a small population. Uh, but we believe that that will expand. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of a concept. Yeah, no, I think, I think we need a new framework. For sure, I think that uh, you know the the ways that we look have looked at this traditionally, you know, the disease model or the um, four pillars and things like that. I mean, they were useful during their times to move the conversations then, but we need to move the conversation again and to get people to see this from a completely different framework. So, um, I, I think the more that everybody can see themselves in this picture. Because we are all, we, we are, it's true. We are all. I, I, I would, I would have thought it was higher than eighty percent of Canadians use substances. <laughs> but uh, I guess it, you know, I mean, if you're talking about everything, then uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's it, it is near universal. Yes. Uh, and all of these substances have benefits and have harms, and uh, you know, some of them have more harms, but that's mostly because of drug policies <laughs> and it is the drugs themselves. Um, but but yeah, we we have to think about the health impact. Of, um, of my drinking coffee as much as I drink coffee. We have to think about... I was thinking the other day, because I had stopped by at my local liquor store to grab a bottle of scotch, and I thought, man, that's getting expensive. And then my next thought was, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we have some of that stuff in place, you know. And the, the other thing I, I was thinking, you know, uh, to get your thoughts on, Rob, and it just... Uh, came and went is this idea of health eh? that we can attach substance use with the word health many Canadians are going to take substances to improve their health all their life Canadians are going to use substances around ceremony and then we have these sort of predatory practices where people design substances to create addiction amongst the vulnerable to create that hourly need instead of the six month or the six hour I'm well now um, and so there's a decriminalization and there's also what do we do with the adversarial uh, um, I don't want to use stigmatizing language but people that are adversarial predatorial to the population and I, I look at obesity in North America and, and you go back and when did we first start having people design soft drinks that made you thirsty well, just to give yeah. the general population yeah. an idea that this is real stuff, people design soft drinks to make you thirsty, so you can imagine that people design drugs to make you hungry for more. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's basic free market capitalism, right? I mean, there's no better example of the free market than the drug trade, yeah. uh, where it isn't completely unregulated. And it is completely, and so you think about the risk and the profit, so the risk is going to jail for it, and the profits are absolutely immense. And, 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 and all, pretty much all of that profit is based on criminalization or, or prohibition. That's what the, that's what has, has created that profit margin. So, and then when, you know, in the age of fentanyl, when you don't have to have complex uh, importing of the substance anymore, uh, and you only need small amounts of the substance, you don't need large amounts. So your your likelihood of being detected is nil. You know, it's very low. I mean, there are fentanyl busts that happen and things like that, but no. it's so low, and the profits are so high that it's it. 
it's a no-brainer. And, you know, I really do think that, you know, as we were doing some drug checking in the supply and we kind of watched how the fentanyl cocktails or the opiate cocktails were kind of emerging in the drug supply, I really think it was intentional. I think that it was, it was people were trying to figure out what's the best combination of these fentanyls, analogs, and, you know, U-class drugs to optimize their profits by keeping people just well enough that they needed their next dose. And so, so I don't think it's by accident that it's come out this way. Absolutely. And, and, that's, and that, that is that market. So, but, I mean, what do you do? I mean, there are, there are always going to be people who are going to be there to exploit human pleasure and uh, or you know reduction of pain depending on what the motivation is in, in terms of the substance use yeah um, so I think that the best we can think about is making sure that we provide people with some alternative to that recognizing you know again if, if our goal cannot be the complete elimination of the the unregulated market, because anytime your goal is to complete anything, you're going to fail. <laughs> so, so what you really need to do is you need to provide alternate sources of that dopamine rush, yes. or those um, yeah. oxytocin coming into the system. So that that may be drugs. I mean, that, there's lots of other things that will release these chemicals in our brains if uh, if we if we don't have anhedonia and we we don't uh, uh, we we don't have the we haven't lost that ability to to feel the the pleasure that other people feel all the time. Um, so, so, you know, it's really about finding stuff to compete with what's out there. And, and, and it's much, much harder now with the folks that come to see us to compete with that market that's out there. But I think that you still can with people who are, you know, recreationally using substances. You know, make sure that people are involved in other things, sports, arts, music, um, faith communities, just yeah. other, other things that, you know, that create that sense of belonging that give them that uh, those kind of those warm fuzzies and, and give them that that, that thrill of, um, of of discovery or whatever it is that kind of turns people on and naturally engages these uh, these systems within our brains that uh, yeah. make us feel good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of those people who lost a lot of that. Uh, you know, uh, I grew up across the street from a dairy, and so ice cream. You know. My brain still loves ice cream, but my system does nothing when I eat it. it just there's no pleasure, you know. So I, every week I go and get a little piece of ice cream to see if it's come back, uh, but it hasn't, you know. And it may never come back in my life. And so these are very real things, and not everybody understands that the system gets impacted, the brain neurology, the, the brain chemistry gets impacted, and so the idea that how come you don't enjoy the, the sunny day. Well, because it doesn't give me any pleasure, you know. You know. How, what about the breeze on your face? Well, I didn't notice. It doesn't. My body doesn't respond to that anymore. And so, people are going to have uh, a struggle to find a way towards what is going to be a meaningful life. What is going to to work? And and some of them, you know, some of those breaks may not be repairable. You know. And, and then it's a question of well, as a society. Are we going to punish people? Yeah, especially if those breaks happen very early in life, right? So that we know uh, from the adverse childhood events research, it's really clear that a lot of this stuff happening to people when they're very young, uh, under the age of six, uh, we can't repair that once it's done. So that detachment and that disconnection that people have or that inability to relax or, be, or to... Um, 
uh, all of those things, we can't restore it uh, after that because they were never formed properly in the first place. So the, there is a, uh, there's certain realities that we have to live with with this. Uh, and again, to take these, you know, these now adults and to punish them for that, it just doesn't make, doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I mean, we, we, we care about them when they're, when they're kids, but we don't care about them when they're, uh, you know, 22 years old and really struggling. I remember someone once said I was the poster boy for an Ontario welfare program around people who had my issues, and I was 56 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that, I... Is that what they call a backhanded compliment? <laughs> well, you know, I, I knew they meant well, right? And, and uh, you know, in, in many ways, they were talking to the person who got wounded a very, very long time ago. And, uh, you know, I, it was a true story. I, I needed society's support. Um, I had done my very best, and, you know, it, it wasn't there. And so I, I, when I look at people, I always ask people, can you see the child still? And do you think for a moment, if you're wondering what they're thinking, do you think the child was planning to get here? Or no? And so I wonder what happened, right? that uh, this is the very best that's been able to become so far. Uh, but not from lack of effort. I don't know any child who doesn't want to have a good life. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the very least for us, that child uh, needs to be seen and it needs to be uh, told that it's okay and that, uh, that, we're will ex- that we are accepting them. And that is, uh, that is so profound. You know, people need to, it has to be acknowledged, you know, that we see you. It's okay. We're okay with, with, you, with who you are. You don't have to sit pretty for us. And you no. don't have to roll over. You don't have to do any tricks to have our respect and, and our presence with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You are you are valued as you are right now. Isn't that what we all want? Yes. Eh? <laughs> yes. Well, can we start by giving it instead of trying to get it? We, we all have our insecurities. <laughs> we all have the things that we're not, you know, when we're taught this, of course, this is all, you know, this is all done within the context of the culture that we grow up in with these messages that were inadequate all the time, uh, which is also driving this. We're not as good. We're competitive with our neighbors and things like that. So we're all told that we don't, we don't meet this mark. Um, obviously, you know, when we're talking about people who've got abuse in their past, it's, it's, it's much more serious, but there's this, um, um, this collective sense of inadequacy and not being seen and not being accepted for who we are that we, uh, we really need to shift. So we get to the equity piece and, you know, when people uh, talk sometimes about prevention and education, you know, the adverse childhood experiences, it turns out it seems like the greatest prevention we could do to it would be to have an equitable society. Yes. Uh, which probably isn't going to be perfect, but we now know the real costs of an inequitable society are the problematic situations we have now uh, with people who didn't have opportunities, whose opportunities were taken from them, who, you know, started behind the, the start line. Yeah, we've lost, we've lost a whole level of, of work and employment uh, for people. Yes. Um, you know, if you if you don't go to university today, college or university, 
uh, there's really not an awful lot out there for you. And not everybody is, in, is you know, has those intellectual skills or the money to do that. Uh, but the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the places where people could go into the manual labor has been offshore. It's just, it's just not available here anymore. So we've had this, again, this whole social dislocation of people who, who really have no purpose and no hope and they are, are not meaningfully, don't have the opportunity to meaningfully contribute to society that it just creates despair. And, you know, we get so much of our identity from what we do. Um, and when you don't have a, a, an identity, you don't have a positive kind of social identity, you'll take on any identity you can take because being not having an identity is intolerable psychologically. So taking on a, 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 an identity as a drug user or a person who uses drugs is, or, uh, you know, is, is better than no identity. Uh, Absolutely. And, it, and it, it actually gives you hope and purpose. The hope and purpose is that I'm going to score more drugs today and i got to go out and do this. And, uh, uh, and then hopefully, you know, within that, there's also this hope that someday things will be different for me, uh, which, you know, is my experience of most of the people that come to use our service, even, you know, when they're the most um, captured in what's going on with them, is that they still, uh, they still have hope that tomorrow could be different. Yeah, and, and if we don't hold that with them or and occasionally for them, you know, hope, you know, this beautiful thing about hope is that uh, it can become a weight and it can become uh, a headbender, you know, because there's no, sometimes people don't have the evidence yet that their hope is going to make a difference. And so if people with hope have not experienced that hope is of value, then when we engage with them, hope we're going to need to be really gentle in my mind, to make sure that it's also, yeah, geez, I'm you know, hoping tomorrow is going to be a great day. But that's not a piece of judgment, and it's not a good day. I'm still hopeful for the next day. Yeah. Oh. Somewhat related, I'm reminded of a, of a study that I saw at a presentation about um, where the researchers asked people who, uh, what, what types of things kind of give you pleasure in life? You know, and so you know, and, and then they ask people who use drugs the same question, and so the, you know, people are, you know would be d doing things like, well, I like you know playing sports, I like reading a book, I like, uh, and so the interesting thing was that both groups had the same list of things that they like to do. Then they asked the second question: is when is the last time you were able to do that? And with the group of general population. Far more, it was a recent experience that they had. And the people who use drugs, it was something that happened years ago was the last time they were able to do that. So I think that's quite telling in terms of, uh, um, of just, you know, first of all, how common, you know, we, we are all the same. Uh, yeah. But it's really about that inequity and that, yeah. that unequal access and that lack of opportunity for even the basic things that we know give us pleasure. I was staying at the hospital and they had a, hospital volleyball game for the people staying at the hospital and I went up there uh, and I uh, jumped up to block a shot and when I jumped up I was 28 and when I landed I was 56. <laughs> 28 years had gone by since I played volleyball which I loved playing volleyball you know and so yes I would have had the same list and I absolutely understand that everybody would. What do we want? Eh? Pretty simple. What do I like to do? Pretty simple. 
often. And those are often the experiences. And for some of us, it'll be read a book and be quiet and I have nobody around. But there's these things that we have, eh? And then, yes, equity. Can I do those anymore? Do I have access to those anymore? And um, I'm hopeful for the future. And a lot of that, Rob, is, is built around the changes that you have been uh, standing in front of and speaking for, even as you gather allies around you. And I'm really comfortable to have this conversation with you today. I'm very curious to see what happens next. And I'm very hopeful that we are not looking at one solution to fix all methods and that conversation can take place and that we can be directionally correct and make adjustments as we go. Does that sound okay with you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot of work ahead, and uh, you know, it's 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 not up it's not up to us. It's up to us more collectively. And you know, this is going to take decades. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be doing this for decades. So, <laughs> I, I think that we need to kind of lay the groundwork and then build up the next uh, level of leadership. Uh, you know, I think that uh, certainly the work that you have done. I mean, uh, in, in terms of making sure that that voice of lived and living experience. Uh, is at the table. That's that's the leadership that we need as well. So, so and and we got to work on these uh, these alliances, right? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, there are. It's 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 not about whose voice is more important. It's about what collectively we can do. I, that's a beautiful way to express it. So I'm not even going to touch that. That's just beautiful. Uh, and yes, I'll have a little blanket on my knees in in a, in a number of years from now, and I'll be interested in what's going on. But I won't be much part of it anymore. And change is going to come through others, you know. Uh, and so I have a lot of respect uh, around that idea. I said I wasn't going to say anything. Now I'm going on, Rob. Anyways, I love talking with you, but I think our time must be just about up. So, Rob Boyd, thank you for everything you're doing and everything that you have done. And I look forward to working with you as we go forward. Yeah, me as well. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks. Thanks.